Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show as I speak. It is, oh my goodness, it's December 1st. Good Lord. Uh, December 1st. Wow. Uh, And uh, I got my distinguished guest standing by. I think you probably can all guess who it is uh, before I bring him on. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell you what the big news of the day is. And this is literally breaking news. It broke about an hour ago. Uh, the U.S. Congress, in its infinite wisdom, voted uh, to expel George Santos. Somehow or other, I cannot even say this without laughing. What a clown this guy is. Um, <laughs> from Congress. Uh, and uh, apparently there's a um, an ethics committee. Uh, in the U.S. Congress, you would think that would be a contradiction in terms. Of course, there is a, an ethics. Uh, there's a, I think there's an ethics committee in the city of Chicago as well. Let's just pause and think about that. Huh? Uh, and the ethics committee in Congress released uh, a 56 page report <laughs> that accused Santos. And I am now quoting from The Washington Post of an array of misconduct, including stealing money from his campaign, deceiving donors about how contributions would be used, creating fictitious loans, and engaging in fraudulent business dealings. Santos, the report alleges, spent hefty sums on personal enrichment, including visits to spas and casinos, shopping trips to high-end stores, and payments to a subscription site that contained adult content. End of quote. Hey, he's a grown-up. If he wants to watch porn, I think he's got a right to do that. All right. Uh, and um, Santos, uh, <laughs> in class, like, this guy is such a clown, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, he predicted Friday morning that he would be expelled. He went on Fox and Friends. All right. I'd have had you on, Santos. I would have made time for you on my podcast if you had come to me instead of Fox and Friends. Here's what his quote was. He was taking the high road. He was, he was finding his inner Michelle Obama on Friday morning. Quote, I have accepted the fate. I believe that if it's God's will to keep me here, I will stay. And if it is his will for me to leave, I will leave and I will do so graciously. Oh, you poor dragon, poor God into this. What, did God make you do it? Is that it? And then here's the, the funny part about Santos. What a piece of work this guy is. So he's going to leave graciously. Remember that part of the quote, ladies and gentlemen, because it's God's will. All right? If they vote against him, it's God's will. Moments after the expulsion vote, this is coming from the Washington Post, Santos left the chamber and headed down the Capitol steps to his car, trailed by dozens of reporters. Quote, <laughs> I can't do this without laughing. Quote, you know what? As unofficially already no longer a member of Congress, I no longer have to answer a single question to you guys. Wait, what about the graciousness? What about God's will? <laughs> uh, anyway, that leads me to my distinguished guest who's patiently waiting. 
Uh, and I will conclude with this point, and then I will turn things over to my distinguished guests. Having said all that, had I been a member of Congress, as impossible as that is to imagine, sometimes I imagine myself as an alderman in Chicago City Council, ladies and gentlemen, but it's even more of a stretch of imagination to imagine me in Congress. But had I been in Congress, I would have voted to keep George Santos in Congress. Yes, I would have. And you know why? I'll be honest, because I want to embarrass the Republicans, okay? That's about all. I, I want to humiliate New York voters. You sent them here, New York voters. It was your idea. Your idea of a good congressman was George Santos. So you have to live with the consequences until you do the right thing and oust him. Yes, that's how I would have voted. That's ladies and gentlemen. And uh, that's why I never would make it to Congress. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring my distinguished guest, ask him to introduce himself, and away we will go. Distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Um, I'm David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University, lifelong non-pathological liar, um, <laughs> and <laughs> the author of uh, how It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, columnist at Newsweek and Slate. Um, and no intentions to run for Congress, not because I've spent my life lying about my history and everything possible under the sun. Um, <laughs> George Santos, man. Wow. Um, <laughs> All right. So here's the question that I'm posing to you. The question of the day. All guests today will get this question, including the guy that's coming on later in the afternoon. We're going to be talking about sports. He's going to get the question, too. Uh, if you were a voting member of Congress, if you were Congressman David Ferris uh, from the 9th Congressional District, I think that's your home district, uh, Jan Schakowsky is your congressperson. If you were Congressman David Ferris, would you vote to expel George Santos <clears throat> or would you vote to allow him to stay in Congress? Go. Well, Ben, I appreciate your point. Um, and I, I actually, I mean, in all seriousness, I do think that looking at this strategically is the way that you should be doing it as a Democrat. I mean, it's done, right? The, the deed is done. So, but um, I, I actually, I think that there is strategic logic to expelling him now. Let me just lay it out for you. Um, Democrats have been just slaughtering the special elections um, since 2021, um, which is, you know, so, something that complicates the whole Biden polling picture. It's a long story, but the reality is like, we've been outperforming our, our expectations by 10, 14 points for well over two years. Um, and we cannot necessarily be confident that that environment will persist to November, 2024. Like there may, there may be something unique about the political environment for Democrats that is allowing them to, to overperform special elections and capture seats that they might not otherwise capture. And so I think there's fairly compelling strategic logic here to throw them out now um, so that they force a special election prior to November 2024, because I could I could I could understand an argument that would say, well, when Trump is on the ballot and our nightmare Republican primary voters are about to inflict this guy on us again, when Trump is when Trump is on the ballot, third time they've nominated this guy, right? When when Trump is on the ballot, like all hell breaks loose, all predictions are off, uh, and Republicans actually might do better. Um, than they've been doing in these special elections because um, the kinds of people who just like won't get out of bed for anybody but Donald Trump, <laughs> they are out there, man. They are out there, uh, are going to show up in droves in November 2024. So that it's possible that the best chance of recapturing Santos's seat, which is a Biden district, uh, in other words, the district where Biden carried the popular vote in 2020. Um, so this is already a, a top pickup opportunity for Democrats, right? Um, and... Um, so I, I think that there's, there's very compelling logic to, to throw him out. And I'll have the special election while the memory of what he did is fresh. Um, whoever the Republicans nominate for that seat, you just hang Santos all over that person. Um, and we already have like just, you know, a Ken Burns documentary full of the clips of people standing with Santos and defending Santos and appearing with Santos and campaigning with Santos and justifying Santos. Um, to like, we don't really need him in Congress anymore. Like he's done enough. Yeah. <laughs> Like, he has given us enough of a gift. Uh, he is like a political annuity um, that will keep paying out uh, for the next year or so. And so I think, you know, at, at this point, 
just just cashier the dude, right? Like, I mean, it, it thins Mike Johnson's already very thin majority, um, gives him very, very little freedom of action. Um, Republicans now have the embarrassment uh, of being the first political party to have their, one of their members throw out, thrown out without an indictment or a conviction or anything, right? It's just 56 pages of lies and it, things that will become crimes, but have not been, haven't been prosecuted yet. Um, that's they, let, let them li- live with the ignominy of it. Let them try to defend that seat after what they've done and what they defended. Um, and we'll see how it goes. I'm pretty confident we'll, we'll recapture that seat and I'd be less confident a year from now. So that's the case, I guess. Um, and then, I mean, just beyond strategy, I mean, this guy's just like a reprehensible human being. I, I, I mean, like some of the stuff in this indictment, is just like, catch me if you can stuff, right? Like he took, um, campaign donors, credit card information and just like transferred their money to his bank account, right? Like, like, um, you know, took campaign loans and, and spent it on Botox. And, um, I, I just, I'm not an expert on the psychology of liars, Ben, but I mean, there's something pathological. There, like, there's something clinically wrong with this guy. Um, because the idea that you wouldn't get caught in doing some of these things with the level of scrutiny that is leveled on you as a member of Congress is just farcical, you know? Um, and I, I would also just point out that this is an elite failure at the top of the Republican party. I'm like one of the reasons that political parties exist is to vet people. You know, like the day that George Santos declared his candidacy, there should have been senior members of the New York Republican party who went through his record and found out that he was a, a pathological liar within like 20 minutes. It's also an elite failure of the democratic opposition people, <laughs> but that's another story for another day. But like one of the reasons political parties exist, right? Like I know that we have primaries and the voters pick the, pick the candidates, but the parties are allowed to weigh in right? um, and, and take away their endorsement and try to quietly you know, push people off the stage. And um, the fact that Republicans were not able to do that prior to this scandal breaking is, is really just a, like a tremendous intelligence failure um, and deeply embarrassing for them in the ways that I, I really think is going to be pretty consequential for New York Republicans next year. Well, uh you make a pretty compelling argument and suddenly I feel like a, a, a tree blowing in the wind. So maybe I would reconsider my vote. Uh, but I'm thinking about what you said and I'm, I mean, Republicans vetting their own, as you pointed out uh, in the same riff, they're about to nominate for the third time Donald Trump as their presidential candidate. Okay. How much worse is Donald Trump in the pathology department uh, than George Santos as a pathological liar, as a cheat, as a con man, uh, as somebody who says one thing in one instant and then completely contradicts himself in the next moment as a huge embarrassment to what are like our notions of what a public statesman should be? You know, I mean, I, I could make the argument that Santos is a creation of the Trump era. Uh, and so it's more it's less an indication of bad vetting uh, on the Republican Party's behalf and more an indication of how diseased and demented the Republican Party has become. Your thoughts? I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I you know, when you. So I, I, this, this news caught me off guard this morning. I was busy with other stuff and I, you texted me, um, and my, my immediate response was like, oh, so there is a line that can be crossed that disqualifies you for, from public office in the Republican party. Like there is a line. I didn't know that. That's because in my mind, you know, Donald Trump would just like keep descending further and further beneath these like sub basements of humiliation, um, and degradation and depravity, um, and never reach a, never reach the floor. Like there was no floor during the Trump era. Like there was just, there was no behavior, crime or rhetoric beneath which Donald Trump could descend to the point where a majority of, of the elected officials in the Republican party would call for him to step aside or resign or not run or whatever. Right? Like, um, and he's done things that are far, like far worse than anything that George Santos has done. Okay. I mean, Donald Trump has a lifelong record of, of fraud and um, 
in, in financial crimes and misdemeanors, uh, everything that he has ever touched uh, has earned a felony in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. The Trump Organization was an elaborate, uh, you know, fencing operation uh, designed to enrich the, the, the Trump family itself, and that's we're not even in his presidency yet, right? <laughs> Things that this guy did as president, um, and, and no matter what he did, what's that? And post-president. And post-president, right. Yeah. I mean, the dude to overthrow the American system of government, which whatever you want to say about George Santos, um, he, he, you know, he wasn't the ringleader of that operation. And um, so, and then that, that, so that kind of brings you to like, okay, so what's the line? And it, and it brings me a little bit back to your question, like what, you know, would you vote to remove him from Congress? And I said like the only circumstance under which I could see, like I'm a Democrat and a Santos-like figure as a Democrat at the only the only circumstance under which I would say, like, let's just wait and let the voters decide would be if we had a 218 to 217 majority of mass of representatives. You know, like if expelling Santos would turn the gavel over to, like, you know, the like the, the Gilead commanders uh, in the Republican Party right now, I would say you know, uh, we're going to have to make some moral compromises here to stay in power. Um, but we are going to we're going to get rid of this dude at the earliest possible opportunity in the primary. Just hang on for a year. Okay, well, you wouldn't like him any more than you do. Um, and it seems like the line here isn't really about what someone says or does or what kind of person they are or how pathological of a liar they are. The line is about whether or not you are useful to the Republican Party. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a determination made at the highest echelons of Republican power. Um, they very cleverly waited um, for the House Ethics Committee to release this report um, before they threw Santos out of Congress. But nothing in the report is new uh, that I'm aware of. Like, it's not, there's nothing in the report that everybody's like, wow, <laughs> George Santos did that. I can't believe that. That's so crazy. I mean, like, <laughs> a lot of this malfeasance yeah. has been known for well over a year. Um, and <clears throat> people were willing to hand wave it away. Um, a, because I, I think that a, a sort of an ethos had taken hold in the Republican party that like, you just, instead of, admitting to scandal and moving on from scandal and maybe resigning in disgrace like people used to, um, you lie about it and you hire people to spin for it and you go on Fox news and you create a hallucinatory alternate reality. Um, and I think that they could get the, I think that they thought that they could get this done no matter what the person had said or done. It's like, you can wiggle out of it because Donald Trump wiggled out of it. You know? And I think what they were missing about that was the reality that like Trump was president um, Trump commanded this immense loyalty among Republican partisans and Republican primary voters. And he's like a, he's such a national celebrity that he could weigh in on ongoing internal party disputes and resolve them in favor of whoever he wanted. Right? And ultimately Santos lacked that power. Like he was not particularly charismatic. Um, he's not funny intentionally. <laughs> um, he's just a, he's just a petty liar uh, who, who enriched himself at the public's expense and committed various kinds of fraud and very inexplicable lies, like saying his mom was at the World Trade Center in, in 2001. Uh, you know, I went to a college I didn't go to. I have ties to the Holocaust. Like, I mean, things that it just, it doesn't make any sense for you to lie about these things, right? Like you could have gotten elected without lying about where your mom was on 9-11. Um, and I think that the, I think Republicans ultimately concluded that he was an albatross, which I actually think they privately think about Trump too, but that he was an albatross that they, they could get rid of without paying any penalty with their own voters. Where like, no one is going to come out to vote next year in a GOP primary and be like, I'm getting vengeance for Santos. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they didn't treat George Santos fairly, <laughs> right? Like the yeah, liberal yeah. media and the woke yeah. mafia, you know, they come <laughs> after George Santos. Like there's nothing woke about lying. You know what I mean? Like, or there's nothing woke about being like, you shouldn't lie about where you were on 9-11. Uh, that's something, uh, one of the few things I think that all Americans can still agree on uh, is that making up <laughs> the whereabouts of someone's location on September 11th, 2001 is not that we're not, we're not okay with that. Okay. Um, you know, starting wars that you lied yourself into, that's fine. But lying about where you were on 9-11, not acceptable. So so Santos crossed an invisible line, like a like a vortex, like an intersection of usefulness and depravity, and he happened to find himself on the wrong side of it. Uh, I think if he had done like ten fewer things, <laughs> like, 
Like if it was just the Botox, Ben. Yeah. You could have survived. Yeah. You know what I mean? If it if it was just the the weird lie about 9-11, he'd still be in Congress. If it was just he could have invented transcripts for some university that doesn't exist, you know. Like I went to the University of Austin. And so that's <laughs> not really it. You know, um, he'd still be in Congress. It's something yeah. about that combination of lies and, and alleged crimes and misdeeds and the complete lack of any meaningful constituency that would be upset about him leaving Congress. Yeah, you know? that's the key. Yeah. No yeah. one cares. Yeah. Like, he hasn't cast a spell on the, on the National Republican Party or anything. It's just that Trump made all Republicans in Congress think that you can get away with anything and that the default mode response to scandal is to be like, you know, enemies of the people, conspiracy, deep state, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, there's nothing deep state about this. It's just you elected a liar and you missed it. Get rid of him. Uh, that's great ref and so true. And so in some ways, he is emblem- emblematic of uh, the Trump era uh, in Republican politics and in American politics. Uh, yeah. And uh, you're right. Uh, they decided that he was... Uh, uh, more useful out of Congress than in Congress. Let's put it that way. And so they got rid of them. Uh, and then the, the Democrats went along with it. Uh, probably for the strategic, I don't think anybody did this because, <laughs> Oh God, I'm so jaded because it was the right thing to do. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, all right. So, uh, so I am a jaded human being, ladies and gentlemen, 40 years of Chicago politics will do that to you. Uh, and I just, on an aside, urge everybody to check out for my next show where we take a deeper dive into the Ed Burke trial, which is fascinating in its own uh, right. All right. Um, so George Santos, as I uh, said to you before the show, I think sort of represents and symbolizes a little comedy uh, in, in politics uh, because it's so bizarre. Uh, Henry Kissinger died yesterday. Somehow or other, he lived to be 100 years old. Uh former Secretary of State uh, under the, uh, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. I forgot the part about Gerald Ford until I read that. I always link him in my mind, uh, David, to R- Nixon, and I forgot there were like two years he was Gerald Ford's Secretary of State. Uh, so I, I would say this falls under the category of tragedy, uh, tragedy for all the people who were slaughtered uh, in operations that somehow or other Henry Kissinger thought was in I don't know, for the betterment of his resume. Who knows what motivates him? Um, And uh, so I would love to get your thoughts as a student of foreign policy and American history about uh, the legacy of Henry Kissinger, who, as I said, died the other day at age 100. Sure. Um, I want to ask your audience, if you haven't watched The Fall of the House of Usher on Netflix and you intend to, please skip about 45 seconds of what I'm about to say. Okay. Um, But to live, to be Henry Kissinger and then to live to be 100, I feel like you must have made some sort of bargain with the devil. And so I would, I want to keep an eye on Henry Kissinger's family over the next 10 days because the deal in the fall of the house of Usher was like, you know, this guy would rise to the top of this pharmaceutical hierarchy. But when he dies, he takes his entire bloodline with him. So if if the rest of the Kissingers start dropping dead, um, I think that you'll know that some sort of Faustian bargain has been made here to get this man to be 100 years old. 100 is very old, Ben. People, not many people live to be 100 years old. Particularly, I would think, like, just the stress of being in the vortex of global affairs for for 60 years, um, jet-setting around the world. Like, I mean, how many viruses was this guy exposed to in his travels? And he lives to be 100. It's unbelievable. But... Uh, but he has gone. Um, I'm happy to say that Jimmy Carter outlived him, um, which which gives me some sort of cosmic hope about something. But um, you know, I mean, Kissinger is always will forever be a sort of indelible part of the history of the Cold War um, and America's strategy in the Cold War. And I think that he is destined to be associated with a kind of hard nosed realism or real politic. Um, that I think is still a very influential philosophy um, in American diplomatic circles and inside the American government. And in terms of how people think about America's role in the world and the kind of compromises that we need to make and the kind of actions that we need to take to ensure our own security. Um, And Kissinger's legacy is complex. I I mean, he did some horrible things, right? 
Um, he, he also was the person responsible for uh, the, the opening with China in 1972 to the point where he remained um, a, a sort of a back channel um, conduit to the Chinese government uh, almost up until his death. I mean, they were sending like 99 year old Henry Kissinger. <laughs> so, can you imagine? I can't imagine being 99 years old, Ben, let alone being like, time to get on the Cathay Pacific flight and go negotiate with the Chinese premier. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, I'll be watching Netflix in my basement, man. Give me a break. But, um, you know, the, the fact that he was still active and, and conducting diplomacy on behalf of the American government is really unbelievable. It's a, like, I, like, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Okay, but he, he did some terrible things. But it's also, he has like an extraordinary life story. And gives hope to professors everywhere <laughs> that you can be an obscure professor, like a, an obscure, weird sounding, bespectacled professor obsessed with like stuff no one cares about. And then five days later, you're the secretary of state. So um, gave, gave a lot of people hope that you can get your way out of the academy. And, <laughs> but um, the thing for me personally, what I will always associate with Kissinger um, and this is, these are not events that I was alive for, Ben, but I got studied extensively in college and in grad school um, was the U.S. bombing campaign in, in Cambodia um, in the in the sort of the latter half of the Vietnam War under um, other under President Nixon. This was a bombing campaign that was conducted in secret. Um, oftentimes, the, uh, our our forces, our troops, um, were not aware of what was happening. Um, so my uh, my my father was deployed to Vietnam during this time period, um, and has told me like there were times he didn't know where he was. Uh, like, was he in Vietnam or was he in Cambodia? He didn't know. Um, and the ostensible reason for that campaign was like, uh, you know, attacking the forces of of, uh, of North Vietnam and uh, the various countries that were supporting them, um, which, it, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there was an element of truth to it. Right. But like the. The thing that I, that I keep coming back to with the whole episode in Cambodia um, and for, for listeners who, who aren't aware of what happened there. Um, that bombing campaign contributed, uh, I don't think anyone really disputes this, contributed significantly to the rise of a group called the Khmer Rouge, which was a, a, a radical, beyond radical uh, group of uh, sort of ap apocalyptic communists who emptied out Cambodia's cities when they came into power and, and executed doctors and lawyers and tried to reset the world to year zero and had to have like, you know, school teachers tried their hand out at farming and unsurprisingly, several million people starved to death. Um, we, we played a meaningful role. Like, uh, you know, actions taken by our government under our name contributed to the deaths of millions of people. Okay. Did you pull the trigger? No. Did Kissinger pull the trigger and, and kill those innocent civilians? No, he did not. Right. But like when you are thinking about the scope of the, uh, um, the complications, the consequences, the blowback from American policy choices, it's, it's hard for me to understand how anybody would not have this episode in mind um, anytime the U.S. uses its military power capriciously to achieve short-term goals but doesn't think through the long-term consequences of it. You know, something policymakers should be keeping in mind um, as the Israeli government is, is, um, is using American aid and, and weaponry to terrorize the population of Gaza um, in, in ways that I think will blow back on us over time. But like Kissinger really represents that kind of thinking, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, whatever we need to do to, to defeat communists, communists and communism at any given time is worth it. Right. It's the same mentality that led us to support like religious fanatics in Afghanistan in the 1980s to, to, to drub the Soviets to death. Um, and it's pervasive in American foreign policy thinking. Like there is a there's an, an obsession with the, the short term enemy du jour and like anything that we have to do to defeat that enemy is like we're going to do that thing no matter what the cost is. Um, and people often don't think through what will come the day after we leave. Um, we don't think through our responsibility um, to pick up the pieces after the bombs are finished falling. Um, and it's and in one of the supreme ironies of history, Ben, the, the Vietnamese had to come in and clean up our mess in Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. In 1979. Right. Because mm -hmm. that regime, the Pol Pot regime had, uh, was just beyond the pale. And the Vietnamese finally got tired of it because, I mean, they were one thing. They were dealing with like millions of Cambodian refugees. Um, and they went and they invaded Cambodia and they overthrew the government. And they put a, 
less lethal communist dictatorship in its place. Um, you can imagine that's like you are too radical for the North Vietnamese. So um, that's that's Kissinger's legacy to me, right? Um, is a certain form of American diplomacy, and uh, and beyond that, a certain kind of utilization of the American military to achieve a goals that are not strictly necessary for American national security. That's like the whole Vietnam War. Um, and B, a failure to think about, acknowledge, and take responsibility for the negative repercussions of our actions, even if those actions are taken in a well-meaning fashion with the best of intent um, by people who think that they are doing the right thing. There is a pervasive inability in this country to just look at even recent history and be like, well, that was a mistake, right? <laughs> right? We shouldn't have done that. And people suffered because of it. You know, think about the Iraq War. Um, it's not like there were no justifications for it. It's not like you couldn't make a real politic case for it. Right? But like, I'd be really hard pressed for someone to come on the show and be like, this is the ways that the United States benefited from that war. Or like, like we are not in some way responsible for the deep and, and, and enduring human suffering um, that has been experienced by Iraqis in the last 20 years uh, because of the things that we did. Um, and again, like I didn't pull the trigger, right? But like somebody did acting in my name with my tax dollars. So yes, that's what I think about. Mm -hmm. you know? Wow. That was, that was, uh, yeah. And um, wow. That was a powerful riff to follow up with. Uh, so much to follow up with on that. And uh, I'm just going to tie a couple things that you said together, his virulent anti-communism uh, attitudes. And yet, he uh, was, along with Nixon, he opened up uh, the path to uh, normalization with China, the world's largest communist state and a communist dictatorship, and the number of people that Mao slaughtered, you know, was right up there. I mean, proportionally, it's not as much as what Pol Pot did in Cambodia, you're correct, uh, but just sheer numbers, it's staggering, and yet he cut a deal with him. Uh, so the principle that you're anti-communism is not a real principle. It's, I don't even know what the principle is. Uh, it's, it's really twisted. It, and, it's, and then, you know, uh, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, no, go ahead. I'll come back to it. No, I'll just, and I'll finish the thought. I, I've read a lot about Kissinger. I've thought a lot about Kissinger and Nixon and their foreign policy. I was young, but I lived through it and I remember it. I remember the bombing of Cambodia, the invasion of Cambodia, Kent State, the reaction, the response in this country, uh, uh, the consequences that we as a country paid then and paid now. You could do a direct line, in my humble opinion, between all the lies and deceit of the Vietnam War and the foreign policy establishment to the uh, rise of Trump. Because people believe in nothing anymore. Why should they? I mean, is George Santos any more of a pathological liar than Richard Nixon or Henry Kissinger? I, I can't say he is. He's just a more twisted version of it. They would laugh at him like what? You know, you're <laughs> kid. You don't have to do that. You, you could get away with a lot more, you know, and don't. And the way just the cynical, jaded way that. Kissinger used the media and how obedient they were for him. It's just, I hear it, see it in Chicago in the 80s and the 90s uh, as well. So it's just, yeah, it's really sick and deviant stuff. I don't understand. Help me out here. What they thought, like, just the making peace with China the biggest communist country in the world while declaring that you're a foe of socialism and communism and you're taking stands against poorer countries, smaller countries. David, to me, there's no principle there other than we feel we have the right to, to, to kill people whenever we want to. And we're not doing it in any interest. We're just doing it because we can. Yeah. That's my um, conclusion. I, that's a great question. Um, and as I often do, I think back to this movie from the 1990s that very few people have actually seen. And I'm about to, I'm about to spoil another piece of cinema for everyone. Okay. Um, but it's called, <laughs> it's called big night. Um, and it stars, uh, Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub as 
a pair of Italian, neither of, I mean, Tony Shalhoub is not Italian. Okay. But they played a pair of Italian immigrants who opened a restaurant in the Jersey Shore in the 1950s. Okay. Like a gourmet restaurant. And there's like some, you know, uh, Olive Garden slop house up the street that's run by uh, Sir Ian Holm doing the most hilariously weird accent I've ever heard on, on the screen. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so the, the, the premise of the movie is that the, the gourmet restaurant is dying, right? Like Tucci and Shalhoub are going to have to go home to Italy because the restaurant is failing. And, and Tucci asks uh, Ian Holm for money to save the restaurant because they're friends. But he's also sleeping with, with Ian Holm's wife. <laughs> okay. So Ian Holm says, all right, do this. I'm going to bring in Louis Prima, jazz guy. Louis Prima is going to do a show at your restaurant. Um, the papers are going to cover it. Uh, you're going to get enough attention and your restaurant will survive. Okay. Um, and partly because he wants to eliminate a competitor and get Tony Shalhoub, the chef, to cook for him. I mean, he's mad at Stanley Tucci for sleeping with his wife, Isabella Rossellini. Um, he has them throw the party, but doesn't ever call Louis Prima, who never shows up. Okay. Um, and so the whole movie is this like preparation for a feast. It's like waiting for Godot. Um, and then it's an, it's an incredible movie that if you've never seen this movie, it's, it's my favorite movie by a country mile. Um, and I think it has like just kernels of life wisdom, about so many different things. And so at the end of the movie, Tucci confronts home, you know, because he finds out they never called Louis Prima. And he's like, he did this over, okay. Like the gender politics are a little bit dated. Okay. He's like, you ruined me for a woman. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he ends up, you know, Ian Holm says like, I just, I want your brother. He's a great investment. And Tony Shalhoub says, you will never have my brother. You know, he exists in a world above you. Um, you are nothing. He says to him and Ian Holm looks at him. He goes, I'm a businessman. I'm whatever I need to be at any given time. What exactly are you? Right. Like, and so to me, Kissinger is the Ian Holm character, right? He was whatever he needed to be at any given time. He like one day he's an anti-communist warrior. The next day he's making peace with with the with the most populous communist country on earth. There, there wasn't necessarily a through line principle other than whatever he regarded as America's national interest at that moment. He was willing to do, and he was willing to set aside any kind of like moral principles in order to pursue his vision. And he was a very persuasive man to pursue his vision of what American national security interests were. Um, I, I mean, I do think that there was a logic to the China opening, right? And it, it became the the kind of the lodestar of American foreign policy with China, really up through Trump, which was the, in political science and other contexts, we call it like an inclusion moderation thesis, which is like, you bring radical actors into the system, make them compete for elections, and then they will moderate their positions to appeal to people. And I think that a lot of people really genuinely believed that if you could turn China into like, a capitalist dictatorship, um, that its interests would gradually align with the United States, that it would liberalize domestically, that eventually people would clamor for democracy. Um, and, and like the, uh, the very act of like ending the state of hostility, opening up trade, uh, opening up exchanges would lead towards China becoming some sort of liberal democracy down the road. Right. Um, and that turned out to be wrong. <laughs> Right. They were right, I think, about the basic premise um, that like China getting richer and having a larger and growing middle class led to demands for political inclusion. Right? They were wrong in the sense that they underestimated the willingness of the Chinese regime to to crush that dissent violently, which they did in 1989. And it has never recovered. Um, and the Chinese sort of like drive towards liberal democracy has never recovered. And now it's, it's just a, it's just a capitalist dictatorship. It's, it's its own kind of model for authoritarian development as a kind of a competitor model to the United States, which I don't think is what Kissinger wanted. Um, so I'll stop talking now, but that's, that's no, kind of I what think I think. That, I, when I think of China, that. I think Kissinger's, the number one goal was to uh, have a rival, have an ally in a rivalry with the uh, Soviet Union. So you bring China into our, our camp and you exploit a rivalry that already exists there. So that's right. The second point uh, of the whole uh, enterprise is to, to open up China as a market for capitalism, which they were hugely successful at. OK, and that is the driving force. The notion that uh, that you very uh, eloquently articulated about um inclusion moderation that you would turn into liberal democracy is sort of what the the Cheney forces said during Iraq war or Bush said, baby Bush said in, during the Iraq war, we're going to turn Iraq into a democracy. Uh, 
There's capitalist, in my humble opinion, and I'm speaking in gross generalizations here. Well, Milt Friedman himself pretty much said the same thing. So he's like the chief capitalist, the, the thinker, if there is a thinker for capitalism. Like, it doesn't have a soul. It doesn't care about democracy. It's just in it to make money. So the notion that you're going to open up China for capitalism and that's going to somehow lead to liberal democracy is a farce. It's like it's a, a more grotesque lie than anything George Santos has ever said uh, in his life. And I'll give you one example to support it, David. <laughs> when ah, my beloved basketball always comes into things, you, you go back to a movie from the 90s to illustrate your points. I always go back to basketball when. <laughs> The general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted out support for dissonance in Hong Kong. The backlash was so strong from China that everyone in the he had to apologize. He's like, I just shut down his Twitter feed. The either, uh, suddenly reporters are going up to LeBron James and Steve Kerr. Uh, and asking them about foreign policy in China. And they're essentially saying it's complicated which is so ironic because whenever a supporter of Israel says, well, it's complicated, then you get an avalanche from the left about how complicated is this? To which I would say to LeBron James, how complicated is this? You know, uh, but the, the reality is it is complicated because it's complicated by the fact there's millions and millions of dollars, billions of dollars of business deals that is more than enough incentive for 99.9% .9 of mankind, David, to turn their head to human rights abuses. So you get what I'm saying? So it's like, what a farce to think that, like, liberal democracy will emerge from cutting a deal with people who've slaughtered how many millions of people that Mao is responsible yeah, for? And you see a kind of a similar logic, too, in the justifications for it, right? Like, you'll, you'll see the Biden people be like, well... I mean, if we make a break with Israel, then we won't be able to restrain them anymore, right? <laughs> You're like, could you show me the restraint that's been earned here? Right? Like, if the argument is that having China enmeshed in the international community will somehow prevent them from doing X, Y, and Z, it's like they've got like a million people in camps. Uh, that's just one ethnic minority. Like, this, this regime has an atrocious human rights camp, uh, record. And it's just, it's just not clear to me where the success is. Like, oh, we're restraining Israel from doing what? You know, like mass expulsions. They're doing that, too. So I, I just don't see it. I think that we another thing the United States tends to do is to sell itself a story about how our, our involvement um, with bad actors will give us leverage over them. And then we never use the leverage. Right. Like we do have some leverage over China, but they also have leverage over us, Ben. I mean, I, and I think that that's the key point that the engagement people never understood um, is that if the basic thesis fails and, and China does not become a liberal democracy, um, it's not just that their trade with us allows us to dictate various terms to them. It's that our dependence on them allows them to dictate certain things to us and constrain us and force our basketball players to make ridiculous statements um, or, or to retract critiques. Of, and, and anybody that operates in China, any entity, whether that's, you know, Facebook or The Gap, is going to have to make uh, moral or ethical compromises to stay in the good graces of the Chinese regime, or they just won't be doing business there. And I think people really underestimated the extent to which capitalists are willing to do the wrong thing to make money. That's an evergreen. Yeah, wow. That that sums it all up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Henry Kissinger didn't care about any of that, by the way. And he was he didn't care. Like you know, he's cutting deals, making a name for himself, selling books. You know, uh, life is good. Flying around on airplanes. So he's a hundred. He was a hundred, I believe. This summer, July, he went to China. Last time to China, he's revered in China. Like when he died, I was reading articles about. The reverence paid to him, the great diplomat, the great friend of China. And I'm like, God damn, what a cynical world. And people call me cynical, okay? <laughs> wow. Uh, the great friend of China. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, everybody's revered somewhere, Ben. I went to the country of Georgia 
and was ferried from the airport to the Capitol on George W. Bush way. You know, that's, I'm pretty confident. Wow. It's the only place in the world that can learn anything after George W. Bush. So. George W. Bush way. That's, wow. What a way that is. Um, uh, all right. We, uh, I was going to ask you about, um, uh, the school politics and, uh, the, the essay you wrote about it for, uh, um, the, uh, I guess it was Newsweek, but I'm going to hold that for another show because we're most out of time. And we'll just close with a mini Nikki Haley update. It used to be a Chris Christie update. Uh, and this is essentially the part of the show uh, where I asked David if there's any hope uh, that any of the uh, candidates running against Trump for the uh, Republican primary have of winning the nomination uh, from Trump. Uh, they used to p- position Christie as... <laughs> The quote-unquote hope, even though I knew that was a joke when I was doing it. Nikki Haley uh, has uh, received the endorsement of the Koch brothers or whatever's left of their political operation. Uh, and uh, so it seems to be that she's proclaiming a resurgence in her campaign uh, on the eve as we head closer and closer to the Iowa caucus. Any hope, in your opinion, David, uh, that Nikki Haley will prevail over Donald Trump? Look, nothing's impossible. Um, I, I, I happen to think that Haley has the best chance of anyone at this point of, of preventing Trump from getting the nomination, but I think that she needs external intervention in order to win. Um, if you look at the polling, the national polling um, for the Republican primary, Trump is at 62%. I mean, that's it's open and shut. I'm teaching a class on the primaries in the spring, and I'm really worried that if we're not going to have anything to talk about after February. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so he's at 62%, DeSantis is at 14 and Haley's around 10. Um, and so she, I, I'll say this for her. She has gone from nowhere to a competitive third place, um, in a span of a couple of months. Um, and she's done that with impressive debate performances, uh, in which she has really not just held her own, um, but embarrassed her rivals and, and I think made some pretty good points. In, in the context of Republican politics, um, she has stood up for a certain kind of Republican traditionalism. I, I think is terrible, but <laughs> it's in some ways um, still a force in Republican politics. And and so she's on the map. She's um, she's polling competitively in, in New Hampshire, uh, where she's running a strong second. Um, and so she's pushing twenty percent in the polling averages of New Hampshire, where Trump is under fifty percent. And so I think that there's a the dynamic for the next couple of months um, is going to be, uh, you know, Vivek the magician, whatever this weirdo is going to disappear soon um, back into his cloud of, uh, of narcissism and, and stupidity. Uh, and it's going to be a three-way race, fundamentally, heading into Iowa and New Hampshire. It's a three-way race. It's Trump, it's DeSantis, and it's Haley. Okay. Um, and for either of them to take out Trump, the other one has to get out of the way. I mean, that's, that's just clear as day. They could both get to 20% and still lose to him. Um, and they could they could collectively command a really significant share of the Republican electorate. But if they split it, Trump is going to walk away with the nomination, uh, just like whistling his tune because he still won't even debate them. Um, and, I, and I think that like she has maybe one or two more opportunities um, to distinguish herself from Trump in a debate in a way that is persuasive to Republican primary voters. I wrote a piece about, for Slate about this a while ago. Uh, actually, I was riffing on an idea that I had talked about on your show, and then I wrote it for Slate. Now here we are, circle of life. <laughs> um, and that is like, I think that she is the only one making a pragmatic case against Trump that can appeal to Republican primary voters, right? Like the case is not Trump is a criminal who overthrew the American government or tried to overthrow the American government, which is the truth, but is like not a thing that Republican primary voters want to hear, unfortunately. Um, but she went out there and she was like, look, he can't win. You know, I, if you nominate Trump, you're going to lose to Biden again. I'm the, you know, I'm the, if you want to win next year, you can keep the love of Donald Trump in your heart if you want, but vote for me and we'll get rid of Biden together. Okay. That to me is the, uh, that's the only path forward for a candidate to beat Trump. And DeSantis is not really making that argument, right? DeSantis still has his head so far up, you know, the toilets of Mar-a-Lago um, that he, that he just can't see straight and he can't, he can't make a coherent message about why you should vote for him over Trump because he is Trump. 
he's like, I'm Trump, but I'm younger. Um, and I locked down for less time than Trump wanted me to whatever. Right? What, what his argument against Trump actually is, but it's not, it's not something that makes a lot of sense. Whereas Haley's argument makes sense. Right. She's like, yeah, man, we're going to take it to China. You know, we're going to build a wall on the southern border. You know, we're going to prevent your kids from being trans. But we can't do any of that. All that wonderful stuff that we want to do as Republicans. We can't do any of that if you vote for Donald Trump because he's got too much baggage. You know what I mean? He exceeds the weight limit on the plane in a variety of ways. You vote for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. Um, I do think she has a shot. I think it's an extremely long shot. But now that she has the Koch brothers' money behind her, um, the sky is the limit in terms of crafting a message and taking that message to the voters. Like, if she wants to win, she needs to be blitzing the airwaves in Iowa and New Hampshire for the next two months um, with a message about how she has the pragmatic choice to defeat Joe Biden and Donald Trump cannot be the nominee. He's never going to debate her. right? She's never going to like, there's not going to be that moment you know, like, you can't handle the truth. Like, she's not going to get that moment with Trump because he's never going to debate her, right? And so she has to do it off stage, Like, she has to do it, like, while she's debating DeSantis. Um, and uh, so I think it's highly unlikely. But give her another 10, 15 points in New Hampshire. She wins a primary um, headed into Super Tuesday. Then suddenly you have a race on your hands, right? Like, if she ever, if she could win a primary, Right. That, I think, would force Republican primary voters to be like, oh, we do have a choice. Look at this polling that shows her doing better against Biden than Trump. Um, I, I mean, I think if the election were held tomorrow morning, like Haley would walk away with it over Biden right now. Right? Like it's a long time to go. But she's the one that I fear in that group as a Democrat. Um, and, and Democrats were responsive to that message in 2020, right? Like Democrats in their hearts did not want Joe Biden. And they responded to a message of look at the polling. Nate Cohn basically gave Joe Biden the nomination, right? Look at this. Liz Warren does two points worse. Sorry, she can't have it. Um, you know, but like the Democratic primary electorate was responsive to a message of like, I know you like this person, but he can't win. I, I know you love Bernie. I, lo I know you love Lizzie. But she can't be Trump. I can be Trump. And, and, and Democratic primary voters went for that. And so I, it's to me like leave it all out on the field, Nikki. You know what I mean? Like spend a lot of money making that message and maybe you got a shot. Yeah. And then you watch how fast if she wins New Hampshire, Trump will uh, reverse field and debate her. Uh, oh, yeah. if, she, if she wins <laughs> New Hampshire, oh, suddenly the debate's on. Uh, all right, David, thank you very much. We covered a, quite a bit of uh, territory uh, in this conversation. Uh, it was very illuminating. So thank you very much, as always, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks, all right? Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here, as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, see what happens in the meantime. It's always never a dull moment. Oh, never <laughs> a dull moment in this universe. Uh, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 